Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Conflicts have sprouted like mushrooms around the world in the past decade. And that's led to a global refugee crisis. The U.N. says at the end of 2018, nearly 71 million individuals were forcibly displaced from their homes worldwide, the highest number in at least 70 years following the end of World War II. The Crisis Next Door is joined by Jung-Ah Gedeni-Williams, head of the Global Communications Desk with the UNHCR, the U.N. Refugee Agency. Jung-Ah, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thank you for having me, Jason. Chunga, these are stunning numbers. The number of refugees increasing by over 2 million in 2018. Where are most of the refugees coming from? Well, funny enough, um, you're right. The numbers continue to increase, and yet we see that the, the numbers of refugees are predominantly coming from just five countries. Um, and I think that um, if we look at it, more than 65%, I think it's 67% come just from Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar, and Somalia. And um, important to note is that most of them are staying in the regions that they uh, that their origin countries are, are from. So, so for example, most of the Syrians are staying in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Iraq, and other surrounding countries. It's very few refugees that are actually going outside of their own um, uh, inherent regions. How have these refugees been received in their neighboring countries? So far, that it's the neighboring countries that are really um, holding most of the responsibility. So 84% of the world's displaced actually live developing or low-income countries, and these are these happen to also be the countries that surround um, the origin countries of most refugees. Uh, in some places, like I'll give you the example of Lebanon, one out of every six people in Lebanon are, um, are actually refugees, which is a huge number. It has put a, a huge um, weight onto the infrastructure and the existing resources, which is why it's so important for international support to help um, hold up the responsibility of, of supporting and protecting these refugees who so far cannot go back to Syria. You mentioned Lebanon. There was a recent conference in London hosted by Amnesty International and Syria Solidarity UK, and they said that the conditions for the one million or so Syrian refugees in Lebanon are increasingly dire and pointed to a recent study claiming that three out of four Syrians in Lebanon between the ages of 15 and 25 have contemplated suicide because of the current conditions they face, as well as fearing a return to Syria. Is this level of despondence typical in most refugee groups, or is this more acute with Syrian refugees due to the length and devastation of that war? I, I think that it's actually, um, 
it's something that we're seeing across the board. And I think the reason why we're seeing more and more of this level of helplessness and desperation is that as we see larger numbers of people that are forced to flee their homes, we also at the same time see fewer solutions for them. So I started my career in the, the refugee world about 24 years ago. And when I started, we had um, significant scale displacement, but we also had huge numbers of return. So in the Bosnian conflict, in Rwanda, in Congo, we saw huge numbers of refugees who were able to go home. So after staying for a few years as a refugee in a neighboring country, they returned to their home, started rebuilding their lives, their economies, their communities. But what we're seeing more and more is that refugees that are displaced today are displaced from areas that still have either conflict, persecution, or violence. So you look at Syria, you look at South Sudan, you look at Myanmar. These are all places where refugees cannot even contemplate going back to because the conditions are so unsafe and because um, none of the resources are there yet for them to be able to start rebuilding, to start um, really even contemplating rebuilding. Um, so I think, especially with the youth, um, those that are teenagers and above who have very little, if any, access to higher education and to the job market, there is an incredible level of despondency, and, and we have definitely increased a lot of our psychosocial trauma support in, in these operations. Are these groups seeing the lack of political movement to end any of these crises as just an obstacle to ever getting back home or having some sort of normal life? The Syrian war continues to drag on, Afghanistan. These conflicts are just not showing any signs of ending. Is that just leading to this hopelessness? I think it's certainly one of the biggest factors that is is you know growing this sense of hopelessness and this sense of not knowing when the end might come. Um, I I also think that part of it is that um, there is a more difficult um, environment for all displaced, whether refugees or asylum seekers, um, around the world. We're seeing a level of um, intolerance, um, a level of fear, and a level of um, anti-refugee, anti-migration um, that I, I've, I've never seen before in my career. That's certainly something that we have seen in the U.S., and we've had tremendous criticism of the conditions for people trying to make it over into the U.S. from Latin America. Are those kinds of conditions endemic for refugee camps around the world? I believe right now what we're seeing is that there is this this heightened level of fear that um, that frankly is not entirely factually based. And what we are seeing is a very effective um, campaign, I would say, of of stigmatizing refugees when in fact refugees are those people that are fleeing the very conditions, the very elements that um, people are scared of. And I think refugees, um, as we well know, are predominantly women and children. They're civilians that are caught um, and really have absolutely no choice but to flee. It's, it's not at all an option for them to stay. Um, and I do think, you know, it's 
obviously what we're seeing at many of the borders in the world, including the one in the U.S., but also all of the borders around um, Europe and Australia, and even those neighboring countries now with, with um, those countries that neighbor, for example, um, Syria and also Myanmar, we're seeing that there is this real sense of, um, of not knowing how to cope with uh, the numbers of people that are are coming across, and yet I think that that in fact it is manageable. You mentioned Myanmar, and I know you've been to Bangladesh to see the Rohingya camps. Uh, the Rohingya haven't pushed out of Myanmar, and it's not shown much willingness to take the Rohingya back. Would they be considered a stateless people? Are the number of those without a country growing? The number of those without a country right now are actually decreasing. And we we have a global campaign to end statelessness. The, the issue with statelessness is that unlike the issue of um, displacement, like with refugees, we do think that it could be something that could be eradicated um, possibly within our lifetimes, because a lot of the, the causes for statelessness are ones that can be easily fixed. The Rohingya are one of the ethnic groups in Myanmar that um, have been there in some cases up to seven, eight generations, and yet have not been recognized as citizens and thus are not getting access to the kind of resources and rights that other um, Burmese citizens do have access to. So with the, the government in Myanmar, what the, the entire international community and, and of course UN agencies like UNHCR have been doing is trying to make sure that there is presence to really put pressure on um, offering citizenship, offering the full rights and benefits and services of being a citizen for the millions of Rohingya um, refugees, but also the, the Rohingya that remain inside Myanmar and in Rakhine State. What more needs to be done to help with that pressure to get Myanmar to recognize the Rohingya as citizens of their state? Does that require greater powers to come to the aid of the UN and, and other NGOs to try and convince Myanmar to make that move? I think this is, I mean, that is the crux of the entire um, polemic of the, the refugee crises that we see around the world. Um, humanitarian agencies um, such as UNHCR and other NGOs and international organizations, we certainly can help advocate and put pressure and, of course, provide assistance on the ground. But really, it's political solutions that are going to solve these endemic um, refugee and displacement issues, as well as statelessness issues. It is political will that will change ultimately the fate of millions of people around the world. And as you mentioned, in many cases, it's pressure from the international community, from um, all aspects, whether it's political, economic, um, private sector, um, it, all of these things really can help to create the kind of pressure and the kind of environment that will, I would say, convince governments like Myanmar and others to take the policy decisions that need to be taken so that refugees, displacement and statelessness can truly be tackled. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the global refugee crisis with Jung Ah Gadeni Williams, head of the Global Communications Desk with the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I know Turkey has received a lot of Syrian refugees, and I, I believe Turkey has the largest number of refugees worldwide. 
How is Turkey handling such a huge influx of refugees? And are there some countries around the world that are doing a better job of you know, either integrating refugees into their society or at least providing safe and clean environments for refugees before they might be able to return to their home countries? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. Turkey has had the highest number of refugees, um, I think it's for the last four or five years running. Uh, they have... They have been feeling the strain of it. I mean, any country that has that sheer number of refugees, it's very hard to cope um, for an unknown uh, period of time with um, those kind of additional strains and responsibilities on the existing infrastructure and resources. Fortunately, we have seen um, the international community has supported Turkey. Obviously, we need more and continued support to be able to ensure that the conditions on the ground for Syrian and other refugees in Turkey remain at the level and at the kind of protection and, and legal standards that we uphold. Um, there are, of course, other countries that are going above and beyond um, the norms of assistance. So one example of that is uh, Uganda, where... Um, the the government has not only welcomed um, a million South Sudanese refugees, but as soon as the South Sudanese refugees arrive, they essentially are treated the same as the Ugandan citizens themselves. They're given a plot of land. They're given full access to um, health facilities, to education. They're allowed to work immediately accessing the employment market and, and creating their own livelihoods. This is a big issue, for example, with the Syrians, where even though they have been um, so generously hosted by countries in the region, many of the countries have not yet allowed Syrians to, to work. And all refugees want to be able to be productive and to contribute to the communities that they're living in, as well as, of course, um, being able to support their own families. Um, the refugees that I've met over the last 20 plus years are some of the most resilient and brave and inspiring people. And nobody wants handouts. They want to be able to stand on their own two feet to support their families and eventually to return home and start rebuilding their lives and offering the same opportunities to their children as we want for ours. That's very interesting about Uganda. How is that being received by average Ugandans? Are, are they okay with South Sudanese getting that plot of land and becoming part of their country? Yes, so far they are. I mean, they've, they've also seen the benefits. Um, so, in December of last year, the United Nations um, member states passed a um, something called the Global Compact on Refugees. And the Global Compact is the first opportunity that we've had that we're taking a whole-of-society approach to supporting refugees worldwide. So this involves not only agencies like UNHCRs and other NGOs, but also governments, host countries, and um, very importantly, private sector. 
So what we're asking for is let's not look at just the immediate emergency needs that are in place for refugees. Let's not look at the short-term needs between an emergency and when it becomes a protected refugee scenario. For example, if refugees stay over five years, and let's not even look at the development side. Let's look at it in a full spectrum so that we can really provide assistance and support not only to the refugees, but to the host communities that are supporting them. So in the case of Uganda, what we're doing is we're managing all of the assistance and all of the support, um, not only for the lens of refugees and what refugees need, but also the whole of the, the, the community, including some of the host community members and the families that are, in many cases, at the same kind of, of level of subsistence as refugees. So Jordan is another example where, um, you know, in Jordan, I think it was something like 80% of the, the, the population of Jordan um, that is hosting Syrian refugees, they're um, below the poverty line just as refugees are. So what we're doing in Jordan as well is we're supporting host community families, as well as refugee families. And this really allows for both the international community and the, the host communities to feel as though um, this is a, a more comprehensive approach. We tend to think of government solutions for refugee crises. Is the private sector starting to get more involved in finding some sort of say and foothold in, in discovering ways to uh, relieve this worldwide crisis? Absolutely. And I think it will grow increasingly critical. Um, until recently, UNHCR was funded uh, almost entirely by voluntary contributions by government. So every year, um, individual governments would decide how much to support and to give to UNHCR. And increasingly, I'd say in the last 15 years or so, the private sector have started to take a more important role. Um, and now they make up, all, I would say, almost 10%, I believe, of our annual budget. But more important than the financial contributions in some ways is the opportunities that private sector are offering to refugees and displaced people worldwide. So many of the companies and some of our largest corporate sponsors and, and partners are groups such as IKEA, H&M, Starbucks, and many of them are offering um, employment opportunities, training opportunities. They're giving in-kind donations. They're also investing in those thematic areas where they have relevance. So as an example, IKEA is very much involved in um, not only brainstorming and innovating, um, but also supporting all of our um, assistance on energy. So as you can imagine, um, supporting millions of refugees in uh, very different environments, that can, that can take a lot in terms of um, energy needs, whether it's um, electricity or whether it's heat and fuel. And so IKEA has taken a, a very clear interest on that. We also have a number of um, very important uh, supporters who are focused on education, let's say. So we have um, many uh, individual philanthropists as well as foundations and corporations 
that are supporting us by not only funding, but also really helping to um, employ, support, and innovate on the education side. What do you think prompted the private sector to get so involved? Has it been an indication that perhaps it's a failure of governments around the world to do this, so the private sector is stepping in, or perhaps are there other motivations? I think it's a number of different motivations. One, of course, is the fact that um, business and um, particularly some sectors of the business. Um, so let's say, for example, in technology and innovation, I think many of the companies that we're partnering with um, saw huge gaps that they could fill much better than we definitely could in terms of, um, as an example, when we're registering refugees um, using using different technology, using innovation such as biometrics, such as artificial intelligence to help us to really streamline and make the procedures more um, effective and quicker and more adaptable. Um, and then I think part of it is also that a lot of private sector companies and foundations and individuals are really feeling that they want their um, social impact to be greater. And I think we've moved past a point of just social, you know, corporate social responsibility to, to true social impact, where they're not just wanting to write a check, they're wanting to change policy, they're wanting to innovate how we're helping other people all around the world. And we've seen um, examples from places like Airbnb, uh, companies like Airbnb and Starbucks, where they're really using um, the expertise they have in their field to try to innovate new solutions and new resources for um, not only the refugee cause, but also other social justice movements as well. Shanga, you mentioned earlier that women and children make up most refugees around the world. The migrant detention centers along the U.S.-Mexican border have cast the spotlight on children being separated from their parents. How big of an issue is this globally with unaccompanied children seeking asylum? Well, one of the statistics that I think that we're the most concerned with is the fact that there are an increasing number of children who are either separated or unaccompanied um, fleeing conflict and violence. Um, we're seeing huge numbers, obviously, that are um, affected across the world in places such as South Sudan, such as Central America, such as Syria. Um, and the issue of detention just complicates that. Um, UNHCR, along with other UN agencies, categorically um, stand against detention of children and separation of children and families. Um, but unfortunately, it is uh, a measure that we've seen, um, not not just on along the U.S. border, but in, in many other places around the world, um, particularly in the last uh, decade or two decades. Um, and right now, just last week, we've seen a huge um, tragedy unfolding as uh, airstrikes hit detention centers in Libya. And, you know, that's just one example of of one of the places that um, detention is being used um, is very inhumane, is in many ways being used as a deterrent policy, um, but for us is goes against all of the principles of the 
of human rights and also of refugee of the refugee convention. Do these children have much in the way of hope once they've crossed a border? Do they stand worse odds of returning home or being accepted into their new country? You know, I have to say um, it's the thing that always strikes me the most is how resilient refugees, but particularly children are. Um, Some of the children that I have met along the many years that I've worked for UNHCR, they they really stick with me because I remember um, very distinctly, for example, meeting a nine-year-old in Bangladesh. Um, she had witnessed her father brutally killed. Their house was set on fire. She, her mother, and a younger sibling um, walked 10 days um, through the forest, through the mountains to reach safety in Bangladesh. Um, and the thing that she was most excited about, and the only time that I saw her smiling in the whole time that I, I spent which, with her, which was several hours over a, a couple of days, was she was able to register to go to school. And because of the conflict in Myanmar, she hadn't been able to go to school for several years. She was so excited for that. Um, and was talking about how one day she wanted to be a teacher herself. And To see her face light up was something that I will never forget. And I've seen that kind of hope and resilience in almost every refugee setting, whether it's a camp or an urban settlement or resettled refugees that are given the the ultimate opportunity to come somewhere like the U.S. or Canada or Germany and find a new future. So I think that that level of hope in children does remain. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of trauma and tragedy that also coexist with that. But I do think that that the hope is largely why myself and so many other colleagues that I have continue doing this work, which gets increasingly difficult year on year. That resilience certainly is going to be the key for the future for those refugees. Shung Ah, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. We've been joined by Shung Ah Gadeni-Williams, head of the Global Communications Desk with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.